From across the globe, from the center of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading the Aero Society podcast from the Royal Aeronautical Society. This talk's to be given by Professor Sir Martin Sweeting. Uh, Martin's been absolutely instrumental in the, uh, in the whole of the small satellite sector. Um, to some people, he's the creator of the uh, modern small satellite sector. Started the activity back in the late 1970s when he was um, uh, in the university, originally doing things like sort of tracking other people's satellites. And then 1981, he had this crazy idea, why can't I build my own satellite? He went and did that. So the university produced two satellites uh, in, the, in the early 1980s. And following on from that activity... Martin founded the company, Surrey Satellite Technology Limited, in 1985. Um, I'm sure the talk today will go through a lot of the very interesting things the company's done, but really it's, uh, it's an absolute world leader in this sector, and that's largely due to, um, some, to Martin's foresight and, um, uh, and activities over the years. So at that point, I will, um, I'll hand over to Sir Martin. He'll talk for about 45, 50 minutes, then we'll have a Q&A, uh, a Q&A session, and then, then we'll wrap up at the very end. Okay, thank you. All right, well, thank you very much, uh, Phil. And it's nice to see some friends and colleagues in the audience. Um, just a, a health warning. What I'm going to talk about is going to cover a very wide area. So I'm sure there's going to be some people in the audience, and I won't mention their pet satellite. Uh, so please forgive me. It's not uh, intentional. It'll just be either an oversight or just in the pressures of time. So uh, this evening, I just uh, want to... Uh, look at uh, and, and describe to you a little bit about the small satellite activities in the UK. Um, and the title of the talk, as it says here, is Small Satellites Fad or Fantastic. Uh, from Phil's very kind introduction, uh, it's now 30 years since uh, uh, the first of our satellites, small satellites, and it's come a long way. And so I thought it's a good opportunity to perhaps review where they've come and also to look at some of the capabilities that they now offer and perhaps look a little bit into the, into the future. So space, uh, of course, is part of our everyday lives. Uh, the use of space is now pretty well ubiquitous. We encounter it in, in our everyday lives pretty well at every turn, um, whether it's uh, in communications, uh, whether it's in timing and position locations. If you drive around your car with uh, uh, sat-nav, you're using satellites. Uh, we use it extensively to monitor the weather, to improve our agricultural returns, and of course uh, extensively in trying to monitor, mitigate, and, and to some extent uh, position ourselves properly for natural and man-made disasters. Small satellites, however, are interesting because it's a question, as I say here, is it space for everybody? Uh, if you go back when certainly we started small satellites uh, in Surrey 30 years ago, space really was the preserve of the superpowers and the most technically advanced and the wealthy nations. And, and primarily, in the very beginning, of course, it was the Soviet Union and America, followed then by uh, the other uh, developed countries. Uh, but the emergence of, of very small but now highly capable satellites at very low cost means that pretty well anybody... Uh, and uh, can afford a satellite. It's not just, in fact, now nations, countries, uh, companies, universities, and as I will show you towards the end, perhaps even individuals. It's interesting to note that actually uh, the developing countries were the first, perhaps, 
to recognize the potential of small satellites, possibly because they didn't have much money, and small satellites allowed them the possibility of getting active in space with modest budgets and modest resources. And the established space nations were perhaps the, the slowest to pick up on this. Um, although I think we've seen in the last few years that this balance is perhaps shifting. When I last counted, there were now some 62 countries that have launched satellites, of which the majority of these have actually now been small satellites. majority of these countries, rather, have been in small satellites. And particularly in the last decade, we've seen that small satellite capabilities have moved rapidly. In the first two decades, small satellites were first of all thought crazy. Secondly, then in the, in the second decade, they were thought to be interesting. And it was really only in the third decade that they became operationally useful and uh, starting to, to be taken seriously and providing real operational capabilities. But maybe it's interesting just to pause for a moment and, and just look at the, the technology that enables small satellites. If we go right back even before I started in the 70s, back to the 1950s, and just look at the evolution of the technology. Uh, Alan Turing, in, in, in 1950, uh, predicted something that at the time seemed quite phenomenal and uh, uh, beyond, well, really, essentially science fiction, that computers would have a billion words of memory, bearing in mind at that time uh, you could probably count memory on the fingers of one hand. And, of course, subsequent to that, uh, the development of microelectronics stimulated a rapid increase in capabilities. And Gordon Moore, uh, one of the co-founders of, uh, of Intel, um, uh, observed this rapid development and expansion of uh, uh, the density of microelectronics and uh, coined the so-called Moore's Law. Although it's not really a law, it's an observation, but let's not be pedantic. Uh, where uh, he was seeing that uh, we see about an a, a, a order of magnitude increase every five or six years. And it's interesting to see how this has developed uh, over time because Moore's Law has held pretty well for about 40 years. And if we look at the density of transistors on, let's say, microprocessors, microcomputers, we've seen that, give or take, if you plot it on a logarithmic scale, you get a straight line, i.e. it's uh, uh, adhering to his uh, prediction. It's not just, of course, uh, megaflops. Um, it's uh, not just the uh, computing capability, but also the ability to store data and to manipulate it. And so if we look for example, at memory devices, uh, over that same period, we see that they follow pretty closely the same uh, trajectory. And it's very interesting to look in the inserted picture there. In 1980, um, 32 gigabytes of memory weighed uh, 2 million grams, uh, which is so two, two, uh, what's that? 2,000 two kilograms. Two tons, two tons, and cost about a, uh, cost about a million dollars. And if you go out now, down the road, and uh, buy a 32 gigabyte uh, SD card, it weighs about half a gram, and uh, costs you something in the order of $50. So you can see you know, the dramatic shift, not just in, in computing power, but more importantly, the ability to store data and then hence to manipulate it. But it's not even that as well. If you then look at another dimension, at the number of pixels, 
Uh, and this, this graph is, is not fully up to date. It's, it comes from Kodak, and I've been looking to try to find something that takes it right up to the present time, but haven't yet been able to uncover that. We see that the number of pixels and the cost per pixel is, uh, again, very similar. And if you just look at your domestic digital camera, if you buy one this year, by next year, there'll be one that's twice as good, and the year after, you're thinking about throwing today's away and buying yet another one because it has dramatically improved capabilities. So we've seen that it's the computing power, it's the memory, and it's also the imaging sensitivity and, and, and density that's available. Why has this call come about? Well, it's very interesting because alongside the microelectronic uh, uh, revolution, if you like, um, has come a revolution in manufacturing process. This has been driven, of course, by the enormous commercial marketplace. Uh, if we're going to produce billions of mobile phones, cameras, PCs, tablets, and the like, the last thing you want is uh, some uh, uncertainty in the manufacturing process whereby the ra so-called random failures will end up with you know, 100 million mobile phones back on your manufacturer's doorstep. And so there's been an enormous investment, not just in the, the, the science, if you like, of microelectronics, but also the manufacturing process, essentially to eliminate uh, random failures. And if we look at the approach to uh, reliability in the 1980s, it was very much based on the sort of production techniques after the Second World War, where the production techniques themselves had inherent uh, variabilities and consequently in order to be assured of uh, highly reliable long-life components you had to individually screen monitor them very closely and that made them very expensive and it also meant that the life cycle of new devices was rather lengthy and if we have a look at the the failure rate in the in the plot that you can see there in the last uh, uh, and again this only goes up to 2000 uh, but I'm sure that it's progressed since then leveled off since then we see that uh, the reliability that we achieve with um, commercially produced devices now actually, in many cases, exceeds the reliability of those hand-honed so-called space-qualified devices. And this is simply because the, of the revolution in manufacturing process. So what this means is that commercial off-the-shelf components now exhibit extreme reliability and very low so-called random failure events. We have to look at various other... No, that's not a signal for my time's up already. Um, we have to look, of course, at other uh, uh, um, phenomena that will cause failure, such as radiation and, and uh, excessive uh, temperature use and things like this. But if we just look at the manufacturing parts, now commercial off-the-shelf components have essentially become the new high rail. And it's this that is essentially the basis of the small satellite revolution. Um, because it's exploiting, on the, on the first hand, uh, Moore's law, the uh, amazing development of, of highly concentrated uh, microelectronics, um, alongside the revolution in manufacturing processes, which would pretty well reduces random failures almost to zero, um, that the appropriate use of these devices can now allow us to make very uh, capable, very reliable, and uh, low-cost spacecraft. So by taking all the, the enormous investment that's gone into the commercial and domestic marketplace, we can now produce space. So in, in essence, we're now doing the reverse of what happened 
in the uh, 60s, 70s, and 80s, where space created high technology, which was then used on Earth. And the, you know, the usual example is the frying pan, although I'm sure there are plenty of other better ones. Um, here we're seeing the, 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 the reverse. We're seeing um, those devices which are for our domestic and leisure use being used to enhance the capabilities in space. And this is fundamentally changing the economics of uh, space. So what we've seen is that by through this method, space missions have been evolving from what you see on the left, which is a, a very large uh, European satellite, ERS-1, which weighed something in region in excess, I think, of, of eight tons, down to much smaller spacecraft, uh, which uh, can be achieved at lower cost. We reduce the time scales from perhaps decades now to uh, almost months, and uh, with a corresponding reduction in cost from almost billions to tens of millions, depending on the size of the spacecraft. But you know, there's been a lot of debate as to what are small satellites, because a small satellite, uh, say to NASA or to ESA, might still be quite a monster, as far as I'm concerned. Um, so if we have a look at it, small satellites aren't just simply uh, a factor of their size. It's really a function of their mass or size, the time they take to go from concept to being ready for launch, the cost, of course, but importantly, the utility. There's no point in having a very you know, nice, tiny, low-cost satellite. It doesn't do anything useful. So small satellites are this uh, as a function of all these various factors. And again, they, they really spread across quite a, a wide range from what we term as small satellites right the way down to, to what we would term as Pico satellites and everything in between, micro, mini, nano. And I always ask because you know, people want to know roughly what's the size and scale of these things. And if you were to express it in mass, anything under 1,000 kilos is a small satellite. 500 is sort of mini, 100 is micro, 10 is nano, and less than a kilogram is a Pico satellite. So this sort of gives you a, a feel, but as I do stress that it's a, a function of, uh, of, of more than that. And really, the other element that characterizes them is the innovative use of the latest technologies available, uh, especially through the, the so-called COTS, commercial off-the-shelf environment. Now, just to introduce, of course, uh, uh, our work at Surrey, we've been involved in small satellites you know, since the Jurassic period in 1979 when we started out with our first microsatellite, as uh, Phil introduced. Uh, a small team, it was about half a dozen folk, and we, well, I begged and borrowed and stole, to some extent, uh, uh, the necessary bits to, to do that, and I think there's one or two people in the audience who might even remember it, Les. And... Um, the, uh, uh, this then uh, led to, to actually forming a company. The reason for that was that if we wanted to have a sustainable activity, it was quite clear we were going to need more money than the university could muster. Um, and then that, the rest of the story unfolds in a moment. And so if we fast forward from 79 now and 85 through to the present day, uh, we have in the uh, Surrey Space Centre, which is an academic uh, uh, activity in the university, about 100 academic researchers, which uh, uh, focus on small satellite research techniques and uh, satellite and training, looking primarily at over-the-horizon research. Those are the sort of things that we're going to need in the 5 to 20-year time frame. Some of these things we use immediately, like new attitude control techniques, some like uh, 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 flying machines for Mars, we're probably not going to use next year, uh, but uh, we're preparing ourselves for the future. So 
looking at the Surrey Space Centre over the horizon research, but that research then gets exploited through the, its sister organisation, Surrey Satellite Technology Limited, it's a, formed in '85. The objective of that is to transfer this research uh, for exploitation in the commercial marketplace. Um, as a, originally as a spin-out from the university, it's now owned by Airbus, pre, uh, before was uh, EADS, Astrium, and it focuses on manufacturing, designing and manufacturing small satellites for operational use. Roughly 600 staff uh, and capabilities that allow us to, to design, build. We can't yet launch from Surrey, though we're working on it, uh, and uh, uh, operate the satellites in orbit. And it's this synergy between the university research group and the company to exploit that research uh, which really is the, the key here. And it's probably the largest single grouping, academic and industrial grouping, focusing solely on small satellites in Europe and, and, and possibly worldwide. So over the last 41 years, sorry, 31 years, uh, we've launched uh, 41 uh, small satellites, different sizes and varieties and on a whole range of different launches. Uh, initially on the US Delta, then uh, on Ariane, and then following that, extensively using uh, uh, Russian or former Soviet uh, launchers. One of the most uh, uh, useful techniques was to take uh, old missiles, here you see one being launched, um, from the uh, uh, launch base in, uh, in Kazakhstan. This is the SS-18 missile normally carries nuclear warheads. Under the Stark treaties, they were due to be smashed up, but rather than smash them up, we uh, worked with our colleagues uh, in uh, Ukraine, as it happens, and Russia, to reprogram the missile to keep going up instead of coming back down again, uh, merely software, and then to, to launch uh, spacecraft. Uh, we launched our USAT-12 satellite, which was the first of the spacecraft to use this, uh, this missile uh, very effectively, and since then, uh, it's uh, been a, a quite a workhorse. As you're watching it, you'll notice the, satellite, the, the rocket is expressed out of the silo by compressed gas, and then it appears to hover for a fraction of a second before they light the main engines. Always gives one a little bit of a, a bit of frisson before the, uh, actually seeing the, the, the launch. The early microsatellite missions in the, in the 1980s up to 2000, those, that first two decades, as I say, were really proving the uh, ability of small satellites to, to be built and launched and, and work uh, successfully, but they were primarily research activities uh, or educational. But they did lead the way looking at uh, uh, digital store and forward communications. This was in a world before the internet was ubiquitous. If you wanted to communicate to the middle of Africa or to the South Pole, the internet did not exist you had to use uh, something which provided uh, uh, a means of communications by email. The satellite would use a small ground terminal, upload your email to the spacecraft, the spacecraft would physically fly around and drop it off wherever the destinations were. It was they were used extensively for radio frequency surveying and uh, uh, <coughs> demonstrating and verifying various technologies on the small satellites before they were used in some bigger spacecraft. Um, and uh, starting to demonstrate the use of small satellites for Earth observation. The very first satellite cameras produced imagery which took considerable imagination to interpret. However, uh, after, uh, and in fact our first satellite, USAT-1, had one of the very first CCD cameras, 
uh, produced. And, and, and as I say, the imagery was interesting, but not particularly useful. Nevertheless, after some years, the, the, the technology developed and our ability to stabilize the spacecraft improved. And you can see along the bottom right-hand corner some of the very first very modest resolution imagery uh, taken by these microsatellites. Firstly, they were just panchromatic, operating in the near-infrared, and then eventually starting to be multispectral using uh, 2D uh, CCD arrays. And then as the uh, attitude control systems improved, going to line scan fax type uh, imaging. But it was really the use of these small satellites in constellations or swarms that changed the game. Because the satellites had a low uh, unit cost, individually they didn't cost very much, and the launch costs were quite low because they're physically small, we could either piggyback on a larger rocket or use one of the uh, decommissioned missiles, it became practical to launch a constellation of uh, half a dozen of these spacecraft. It wasn't that it was impossible, it wasn't impossible before, it was just that if you wanted to launch six spacecraft of a conventional uh, uh, um, type, each of them costing perhaps three or four hundred million, you were starting to talk very large sums of money for a constellation. So all of a sudden, this, this started to implode where uh, microsatellite constellations could be affordable, and this changed the game considerably. The first of these constellations uh, was led out here at the UK, uh, Disaster Monitoring Constellation, or DMC for short, and in fact it comprised a, a rather interesting uh, collaboration between, uh, international collaboration between six countries, rather diverse countries, Nigeria, China, Algeria, Turkey, the UK, and Spain. Uh, where each of these countries uh, essentially sponsored a spacecraft which was built at Surrey. They were launched into orbit, they were placed in a constellation, and then operated on a collaborative basis. They were launched on three different launches. Uh, then they were spread out in orbit, so they chased each other around, as you, as you see here, as the, as the Earth turns in a polar uh, sun-synchronous orbit. And then... Uh, the cameras on board, each of these colored swathes is a, an imaging swath from one of the spacecraft, so you've got five or six different satellites designed so that the imaging swaths, which were very wide, overlapped. And what that meant is that we could now image anywhere on the Earth's surface within a 24-hour period. And this introduced a different dimension into um, imaging, because before that there was a dimension of spatial resolution, and the spectral resolution, but this introduced uh, the effectively temporal resolution. In other words, we could now look at rapidly changing phenomena. And if we were to, and, and this was made possible by using some of the latest COTS technologies, which allowed us to image a very wide area, and in fact you see one strip across Australia here, which is 600 kilometers wide, with a resolution across that whole strip of 22 meters. And then by the subsequent spacecraft flying over, it meant in essence that within a day you could image the whole of Australia. And if you were to zoom in on any one of those, you were, you were imaging it at a uh, resolution in this particular case of about 22 meters. So you could build up this picture in principle every day. You can then start to look for rapidly changing phenomena day by day. Um, just by the way, the red here is really green. 
the uh, false color that's uh, beloved by the Earth observation community means that anything uh, that's uh, vegetation comes out red. Um, and that gives you high contrast between the urban areas, which you can see here in the sort of grayish speckles. So this, this really means that we can start to do something very different, and that's enabled by the low cost of these small satellites. Now, as the name indicates, the DMC uh, originally was targeting primarily at disaster monitoring. And uh, it responds as part of the International Charter on Space and Major Disasters, as part of that international team, it responds uh, to, there's about one major natural disaster, one sort or the other, per week somewhere around the world. And so that, this charter responds on those as roughly uh, once or a week or thereabouts. And the DMC has uh, provided about 200 uh, rapid response images per year in order to help uh, mitigate these disasters. Now, one of the best examples of, of using this constellation to great effect was during the Indian Ocean tsunami. And this was a rather unusual disaster because it was very widespread. Most disasters are relatively localized, an earthquake uh, or a flood or a fire or something, relatively small areas. The problem with the, ocean, the Indian Ocean tsunami was it was a colossal area. And if we were to use the conventional satellites uh, with high resolution, with very narrow uh, swaths, imaging areas, it was a bit like looking through a drinking straw across this whole uh, um, bay, the Indian Ocean Bay. And it would take forever to build up a comprehensive picture. But the wide swath areas and the constellation on the DMC allowed us to image this very rapidly after the tsunami, to build up a picture right the way around the Indian Ocean Basin, um, and then to use this, first of all, to assess the damage, and secondly, then, where necessary, to, to uh, guide the high-resolution satellites where we wanted more detail. So you can see in the inserted picture the images right the way around the, the afflicted area. And then just zooming in, and I think it's on the very tip here of Sumatra, you can see uh, a, a, an expanded view. Um, again, red is green. And the gray bits here are where the tsunami has washed away all the vegetation and the villages. And so by using this, we were able to build up maps, which you can see here on the right. These maps were then used to guide the relief agencies into those areas of uh, greatest need and also to cue the higher resolution images you see here where people wanted to understand how much of the infrastructure still existed when sending in the disaster teams. So this was something that could only really be achieved by having a constellation with very rapid revisit and a wide swath uh, of imaging data. Another example was during the Katrina uh, disaster. This was an interesting one because, of course, the U.S. has very capable assets. But one of the problems is that legally they're not allowed to image their own people. So when the uh, Katrina disaster uh, struck, one of the problems was, yes, they could do it, but whilst they sorted out all the legal issues, um, there was a lack of uh, immediate data. So some, one of the, the first uh, images that were provided to uh, the US of Katrina was, in fact, from one of the DMC satellites, which was uh, owned by Nigeria. Uh, and that was used in, in the very early stages before they sorted out uh, uh, how they were going to uh, respond. So it's not only disasters, because although there's about one disaster a week, that utilizes less than 5% of the total capacity of the constellation. The, uh, and so what are we going to do with the rest of the 95%? And that's used for uh, national use, in some cases like Algeria, for mapping the Sahara, because the sand dunes move around all the time. 
building up maps of, uh, of very large uh, uninhabited areas, but also, uh, for example, in precision farming. Here is an example in, uh, in the UK whereby uh, analyzing the, uh, uh, the, health, the, the crop health, as shown in the field here, uh, we can then uh, advise the farmer uh, where to place and what concentration to use of uh, fertilizers. Now, this obviously saves the farmer money because he can use his fertilizers more in intelligently. It also minimizes uh, uh, nitrate poisoning and uh, uh, environmental damage by using only the, the amount that's uh, required. It's also, of course, tied into GPS as another use of, of, of satellites. So here is an example of using the DMC data for precision farming, but also for a wide range of other areas, uh, running a program every uh, six uh, months in the Amazon this is a very cloudy area over the rainforest, by definition. Very bad for optical satellites, because it's cloudy. But the clouds move around, and over the course of several months, if we have a constellation of satellites continuously gathering data, we can then piece together a jigsaw of essentially what's underneath the clouds uh, over that period of time. And then we can then analyze what's been happening over that period of time uh, to the rainforests to try and see where the you know, the extent to which uh, logging, either legal or illegal, takes place. And in fact, you can uh, use the spacecraft then to, to uh, monitor, again, bearing in mind red is green, here is the, the forest, here you can see some of the, uh, the logging. It's very interesting to see that the loggers initially were cutting down not just all the trees, but perhaps uh, uh, one tree in three. Uh, to try to make it still look as though there's a forest there for the satellites. As the satellites got better and better resolution, they had to uh, cut down fewer and fewer trees because it wasn't so easy to, uh, to hide. Not just uh, deforestation, but closer to home in Spain, looking uh, here as an example of uh, trying to understand the contribution of forest fires to the, uh, the carbon balance. Uh, in order to understand how much carbon is being released into the atmosphere and to, to understand this, we need to measure the, the so-called burn scar after a forest fire. Uh, instead of sending little men around you know, with, with tape measures around the edges, uh, uh, satellites can be used to uh, calculate this very precisely and uh, allow us also to, to monitor the extent of the fires and, and to measure their impact. What I've been describing has been what we call medium resolution imaging, around about 20 meters uh, multispectral. Um, and that was very interesting, but the satellites were getting more and more complex. And uh, after a few years, we were able to add some uh, uh, higher resolution telescopes to the satellites. Um, you can see here, the images that I was showing you earlier were taken by this set of cameras uh, here, fairly small apertures, uh, 20 meters medium resolution. By adding a larger aperture telescope to the spacecraft, the satellite, by the way, is about the size of this podium, to give you an idea of scale, um, we can start to take higher resolution images. And this is uh, from a satellite which was uh, uh, built for, for China, Beijing 1, which uh, has a 4-meter panchromatic uh, camera on board. And you can see here's an example of a long, the swath of this image is, or the length of this image is about 3,000 kilometers. So this is just a small section taken over uh, an airport, which remain unnamed. Um, and you can see all the aircraft lined up. And if you're, a, I'm sure in the audience we have aircraft aficionados here, we must have, uh, you can tell the different types of aircraft, including somewhat random parking arrangement down, uh, down here in the right-hand corner. So you can uh, use, the, you know, for, 
I think for the first time we could see small microsatellites, and this particular satellite costs something in, if, if memory corrects me right, around about five or six million pounds, the size of this podium, starting to be able to take imagery which 10 years earlier probably would have been classified. And this uh, panchromatic data can then be merged or fused with the medium resolution multispectral data to provide really useful uh, uh, products. Here is an example of an urban uh, mapping product which was generated by Beijing One in preparation for the Beijing Olympics. One of the concerns that the government had uh, uh, in the preparation of the Olympics is that they were letting licenses for firms to build and develop uh, various facilities around the city. Um, and there was a, a concern that actually some of these may be bought by speculators who are buying the land and then just sitting on it. And they wanted to be able to make sure that what had been agreed in terms of development was taking place. So every two weeks, the satellite built up a picture over Beijing to help the local government in the management. It was also used for other things such as monitoring the algal blooms in some of the uh, Olympic venues and, and, and so on, and pollution just prior to the event itself. But again, the inexorable march of technology meant we could start to do things better and better. And then a couple of years ago, uh, we took an even larger telescope now, as you can see here, on a slightly larger platform. Um, as you can see in the bottom picture here, it's a, it, that's not me, but someone slightly taller than me. When I was, if I stood here, I could just about put my hands on top of the satellite. So this is now not a microsatellite, but a mini satellite weighing, I think this one was of the order of about 250 kilograms. But this, again, launched on one of our converted uh, uh, intercontinental ballistic missiles, not one of ours, but one that we procured, um, uh, was then able to provide us with uh, increased resolution from 4 metres now down to 2.5 metres. So what does this mean in practice? Well, you can see an example here uh, taken over Dubai. Uh, for those of you that uh, are rich enough, you may be familiar with the, the very tall Khalifa Tower. Um, and now we're, we're seeing a spacecraft which is really producing uh, high-resolution uh, data, both in panchromatic and here over New York, where you can see Central Park and down here to the, uh, the towers, uh, uh, high-resolution multispectral data. So this is really starting to become operationally very uh, useful. Give you some uh, more examples of the capability looking over. Airports are very good because they're clearly de delineated and aircraft are a good target because you know how big they are. Um, but if we zoom in on this, you can actually uh, read the numbers on the runway and uh, you can just about see the engines on the, uh, on the aircraft. So um, small satellites really starting to enter the, the realm of operational utility, both for commercial applications as well as uh, uh, security and other related interests. I've talked about Earth observation because it's easy to show pictures, and pictures are much easier to appreciate uh, than describing communications or whatever else. But um, it's not only on Earth observation. Uh, the work that uh, we did, sponsored through the uh, forerunner of the UK Space Agency, the BNSC, which, by the way, was also a sponsor for the first of the DMC spacecraft, uh, collectively with uh, SSTL. Um, we uh, also developed the basis for a small geostationary satellite as part of that study, and that work allowed us to bid, um, in an unsolicited bid to ESA, uh, to help 
uh, launched the first of the Galileo test satellites, Galileo being the European GPS. There was a problem uh, in that Europe needed to secure the frequencies within about uh, 30 months of this discussion uh, in order that the frequencies would uh, be retained by Europe and not put up uh, uh, for uh, bidding for the rest of the world. And there was a concern that if that happened, these frequencies would be allocated to China, India, or Israel, or whatever, and Europe would not have the rights to this extremely important capability. Um, we uh, uh, proposed a small satellite uh, at a very low cost, um, and to build it in 30 months with a budget of 30 million euros, and the satellite was completed and launched on time and actually is still operating in orbit, although it's long past its uh, design life of uh, two and a half years, um, and was the, the first of the test satellites uh, in orbit. Um, we were bidding and, and competing with a, uh, another cons uh, con European consortium um, who, who launched something like two years afterwards. Um, this, of course, was a very successful mission, and there have been a number of uh, spacecraft in the, in the further validation phase, which was uh, built by uh, EADS team, which have uh, validated uh, GPS, and then it moved uh, into, sorry, into, uh, Galileo. Uh, then Galileo moved into what is called the full operational constellation. Um, and uh, together with our partners, OHB, we are building the, the full uh, uh, constellation, 22 satellites. Uh, it's a European project, so we have to share the work. Um, OHB are building the platforms. We are building the navigation payloads. So it's 22 satellites. The first launch is uh, due this year. And at the moment, we're churning out one of these every six weeks. So it, it's really uh, uh, now turned into a, a serious production line. Um, in order to do that, we've invested in a lot of automatic tests and robotic assembly techniques, which we can then use to try to lower the cost of some of our more conventional small satellites. But it also provides us with a, a platform to build um, a geostationary communication satellite, and uh, uh, this is uh, something that we see that although it is a small geostationary satellite, so in geostationary terms, where geostationary satellites are typically six to eight tons, you know, this is a, 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 a mere two tons. So by it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very tiny satellite in geostationary terms. It is a large satellite in terms of uh, our small satellite heritage. But we think that there is a very interesting market niche for small spacecraft to provide um, early market uh, communications before a particular service gets established and a large satellite would remain mainly empty to act as an additional capacity when the service expands rather rapidly and we want more capability, and indeed for governments who want their own specific cap uh, communications capabilities but uh, at a uh, at relatively low investment. And if we now look at some of the satellites that are coming up for, for launch, we have the next generation of Earth observation satellites, again taking this, uh, uh, the development of technology. So we're now uh, building four spacecraft which will provide one meter uh, imaging. This uh, uh, is going to be, uh, this constellation will be launched in January of next year. So we're less than a year away for launch. And our previous uh, partners in, in China uh, who uh, uh, ordered the Beijing One satellite have bought the imaging capacity of three of these spacecraft already. So we will be operating, owning and operating the satellites here in the UK, and uh, this Chinese uh, company, a commercial company, will be exploiting the, uh, the data from it. Now, optical satellites are great. 
and they're very easy to understand, or relatively easy to understand the products, image products that they produce, but they can't see through clouds, and of course they can't see at night. And this restricts their use, particularly in the uh, uh, equatorial latitudes, because that's generally very cloudy. Um, and so we want to try to provide an alternative way of, uh, of remote sensing. And this uses synthetic aperture radar techniques. Now, these spacecraft are usually very large and extremely expensive. Optical satellites are you know, complex and expensive, but radar is an order of magnitude more complex and generally more expensive. Um, the large uh, radar satellites often come in at, in the order of a billion uh, euros or pounds or dollars or thereabouts. Um, so in order to try to reduce the costs of this, we need to, again, try to exploit our small satellite heritage. And it's not possible to do everything that the big satellites can do, but on a much smaller platform and by uh, uh, using the, the, the techniques that we've developed for our optical satellites, we are now in the process of building a uh, small, relatively low-cost synthetic aperture radar satellite, which is supported, again, by the UK Space Agency and Department of Business Innovation and Skills, uh, alongside SSTL's in investment, and this is, uh, again, due for launch uh, sometime next year. And this will provide us with, a, a say, day-night and all-weather uh, imaging capability. On a small satellite, as I mentioned, you can't do everything you can do on a big satellite, so we try to focus the uh, mission objectives quite uh, carefully so that we can use, uh, try and target those applications which really suit this size of spacecraft. So it will focus primarily on maritime surveillance, again linked into uh, AIS, automatic identification uh, systems for ships, uh, deforestation, uh, looking at the Amazon through the clouds so we can get much more rapid uh, imagery on the uh, deforestation, and uh, flood extent monitoring, so particularly to be able to monitor, because um, you know, you know, floods usually come with rain, rain comes with clouds. If you want to measure the floods, it's very difficult with an optical satellite. We've seen this uh, in the last few months here, even in the UK. But again, taking the constellation another step further, <coughs> as the onboard uh, memory capabilities and communications capabilities improve, we're now looking at a constellation of uh, small satellites, microsatellites, roughly two-thirds the size of this podium, which will be able to image the entire Earth's uh, land mass every day. So we're able to pick up, a, we're able to create essentially a database where we can image the, the, the surface of the Earth every day, and then you just provide that database and different applications can drill down into it to look for the rapidly changing phenomena and extract information and products and services from that. Of course, actually, interestingly, this would have been an exceptionally useful capability uh, in the search for the uh, uh, missing Malaysian uh, aircraft if we'd programmed it to look over the sea as well as the, uh, the land. Again, an example where the small satellites can be used for other techniques, in this case, in essentially weather forecasting, using the signals from GPS, having a constellation of satellites in low Earth orbit that look at the occultation of GPS through the uh, ionosphere and stratosphere, we can recreate um, the, uh, the, the, the profile, the atmosphere, and, and the higher stratosphere, and uh, uh, use this to improve weather forecasting project that we're currently undertaking uh, with colleagues in Taiwan. And of course, all of this means we need to keep innovating. So if we're going to be competitive internationally, 
going to have increasingly capable satellites, we have to innovate. We need new technologies and, and therefore we need chance, opportunities to perhaps fly some of these new technologies um, before they are used in, in, in anger. <clears throat> now, 15 years ago, the satellites were mainly research spacecraft, these small satellites, and therefore we could afford to put on uh, the latest ideas and see how well they worked. But as the small satellites have moved into an operational phase, and if you take the example I've just showed you of the, of the four satellites uh, and the uh, customer in China, um, they have to earn 40,000 pounds worth of sales from images every single day for seven years to be able to pay back the investment in their satellite system. That means that they're not very interested in us trying out new ideas which might or might not help. Um, so the pressure on the spacecraft to use proven technologies is against the uh, opportunities to innovate. And so very pleased that, the, again, the UK Space Agency and, and, and the TSB are sponsoring a technology demonstration series, hopefully a series of technology demonstration missions, the first of which, TDS-1, uh, carries a whole range of new technologies and uh, uh, concepts for, for uh, proving in orbit uh, from a number of organizations you see along the bottom here in the UK, and the opportunity to try out these ideas in orbit before they are committed to commercial and operational missions. And in fact, one example of that is on the top of the spacecraft here. You can see what is a little bit of the synthetic, synthetic aperture uh, radar satellite antenna system that will be used on Novosar with the intent that we will fly that uh, in the middle of this year and be able to demonstrate and characterize it before we commit to the very final uh, configuration for, for Novosar and launch next year. So this series of technology demonstration satellites supported by UKSA and TSB is, is really critical for maintaining uh, innovation and competitiveness in the UK. But <clears throat> I've talked about small satellites orbiting the Earth. What about the possibility of using small satellites beyond uh, the uh, Earth orbit? Well, for, for the last five or six years, we've been looking at how we could use small satellite techniques to increase the tempo and the participation in, in exploration of, uh, uh, of bodies other than the, uh, than the Earth. And the nearest one is the Moon. It also applies to, to Mars. Uh, and to use small satellites to provide, a, a, say, a lower cost uh, approach to exploration. And hence, within certain budgets, we can have more missions. It means greater participation, shorter cycle times, means young people in particular uh, uh, and people working in the field get more opportunities to uh, participate in exploration rather than having missions that take one or two decades to go from concept through to operation, which is essentially the whole career life cycle of a person. So using small satellites to augment the, the very large complex missions to Moon, Mars and, and beyond. A concept that was nicknamed Moonlight which was to take a small satellite and to carry uh, a number of darts or penetrators on it, which would then drop down and impact the, uh, the surface of the moon at, at quite high speed, 300 meters per second, carrying very robust uh, uh, instruments to be able to monitor moonquakes, determine the uh, thermal characteristics of the, uh, of the lunar regolith uh, was developed. Um, unfortunately, just as this was uh, beginning to, to catch the wind, we had the, 
uh, financial uh, recession issues in the UK and so currently it's a little bit on the back burner but we're hoping that we'll be able to bring this uh, forward uh, before too long. Although that seems a science mission, from my point of view it has another objective and that is particularly with the discovery of water on the moon, substantial amounts of water in the lunar regolith which you can extract, it means for the first time sustained human habitation on the lunar surface is indeed practicable. If it's practicable, sometime, and I don't know whether it's 10, 15 or 50 years, uh, there will be uh, sustained human habitation on the moon. When we have sustained human habitation on the moon, uh, we will, and we need to better move around the lunar surface, we will need communications and we will need navigation because every crater on the moon, at least to me, looks much like the last one. And if you're trucking around on the lunar surface and you go around the corner, you, know, you lose all bearings. Uh, so you're going to need Vodafone around the moon and you're going to need Galileo or GPS around the moon. And uh, so uh, what we're working on at Surrey is how can we prepare for that? So yes, we're going, the first missions may carry a combination of communications and navigation demonstrators and some science to, to make it as applicable as possible. But this is a long-term business plan to uh, prepare for, uh, say, the Vodafone and the GPS around the moon when we have eventually sustained human habitation thereon. So, after all this, are we actually following Moore's law? Well, if we had a look at the very uh, early Earth observation missions, the satellites were crewed, they had poor location, they had very you know, rough timing, they had poor attitude control, uh, we were having to use uh, CCD, area CCD arrays, which had limited uh, uh, pixel density and hence res uh, spatial resolution. And they were producing interesting, uh, but uh, not necessarily uh, commercially terribly valuable imagery. But the later missions started to have improved attitude control. They used uh, in-orbit GPS positioning to have precise uh, position, so we knew where we were taking imagery. They could then uh, have uh, used push broom arrays, have much greater uh, swath and greater pixel density in effect. And so if we again look at uh, GSD, ground sample distance, that's essentially resolution here on the left on an algorithmic scale in the years up to 2006 in this particular case. Yes, there's a bit of a scattering in, in terms of the resolution of different missions because they had slightly different applications. But the trend, I think you can see, is broadly in the same direction. Um, so if we sort of smooth that out a bit, we can see that you know, between 1990 and, and 2010, over two decades, it's pretty, pretty well following the, the, the Moore's Law um, uh, trend. But it's not just resolution. As we get higher and higher resolution, we generate more and more data. We have to store that on board, and then we have to transfer all this data down to the ground. So we have to also improve our... Uh, data transfer, communication transmission speeds, uh, and of course that's all within a small satellite with relatively limited power capability. And again, if we have a look at the, the sort of uh, uh, data rates in, in megabits per second uh, uh, and data volumes that have been uh, uh, transferred, in the very early days, 1990s, we were talking about uh, a thousandth of a megabyte uh, up to today where we're talking about 500 megabytes. So we're seeing an enormous increase in the capability, partly due to technology, partly due to the way we operate the spacecraft. And so the data volume per, per year, again, has been increasing, you know, give or take, along the Moore's Law trajectory. 
but can it continue like this? Because actually, we're eventually going to hit the laws of physics. Uh, in terms of optical resolution, eventually, you, know, you, you, you need a big telescope to increase your resolution. And eventually, the telescope becomes a whole heap larger than the satellite. Um, and so, you know, where, where does this, this lead? We're down to about one meter at the moment. Um, and you know, how much further can we go with a small satellite before it, it doesn't make much sense? With conventional optics, it looks like the limit for a 300 kilo satellite is probably in the order of half a meter or a little bit less maybe, but of that order for, for a conventional satellite. So we're quite close to it. And in fact, our current spacecraft could operate at 0.8 to 0.7 meters. So we're getting very close to, to, to the end. And, and is there, you know, so is there a future for us? Or are we going to become extinct? Well, there's been an interesting development. Uh, in 1998, so quite a while ago, uh, at the, uh, in the Surrey Space Centre, working with SSTL, we decided to see what, if we could build a really small but useful and capable satellite. And this was uh, one of the first and, and, and highly capable nanosatellites. This satellite, which was roughly the size of a beach ball, weighed uh, about six kilos, it had everything that the larger satellites had, but in a microcosm. So we just shrunk down the avionics, you know, miniaturized the wheels. Um, you can see the whole thing here to give you an idea of scale. Uh, here it is in its underclothes. Um, this is the propulsion system that's on board the, the spacecraft against the pencil, a machine vision system, which was looking out uh, the side here. And uh, if you've got really good eyesight, you can just see a finger here. So this gives you an idea of scale of the satellite. And it had onboard uh, GPS positioning, it had onboard propulsion, three-axis control, and cameras. The first thing we did was to image the Russian mother satellite with which we were launched. Now, we told the Russians we were going to do this beforehand, but they didn't really pay much attention. Uh, when we showed them the image and said, do you mind if we share this around, they got rather excited. Uh, but eventually they agreed. And then after we published it, the US got very excited. Um, but it started to demonstrate the capabilities of the spacecraft. And in fact, uh, it, it then went on to uh, attempt a rendezvous with uh, uh, a sister satellite that we built, uh, which was launched at the same time, where here is the microsatellite. And this, you've got time along the bottom here in days, and this is orbital altitude. And essentially, this satellite, um, you could see the decay of the uh, orbit just due to atmospheric drag. And the little spikes, by the way, are, are introduced by solar storms, uh, where it, it suddenly changes the atmospheric density and so the, 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 the drag uh, varies. And then the concept was that this uh, tiny nanosatellite called SNAP-1 would be launched a little bit higher than the uh, microsatellite, and then we would use onboard GPS autonomously to navigate towards a rendezvous. Somewhere in the discussions with our Russian colleagues, uh, something got inverted, and our tiny nanosatellite was launched below the uh, uh, target satellite. And not only that, the ballistic ratio was different. It started to decay even faster. So here it was, just about to head away rapidly from the target satellite. And now you can see the onboard propulsion system changing the orbit, bringing it up above the target satellite, and then navigating it down towards a rendezvous, uh, and at which point it ran out of fuel. Um, and this was all done, uh, say, by having now in something the size of a beach ball uh, the same sort of capabilities as, uh, as some of the larger satellites. And then fast forwarding uh, almost 15 years, 
Uh, last year, we launched uh, uh, the sort of successor to that tiny satellite called Strand in this case. But the heart of this nano satellite, which is about the size of a loaf of bread, um, was a mobile phone. Because mobile phones are essentially the ultimate in cots. Um, in your mobile phone, if you look at it, it has communication systems, it has a camera, it has uh, GPS, it has uh, attitude control uh, uh, gyros, it has a magnetometer. You know, it's got everything you want in a satellite, essentially, uh, except propulsion. Um, so the concept here was to essentially launch the first phone sat, as they were then subsequently dubbed, uh, using the uh, to see whether we could use in this uh, in this case it was a, a Google smartphone uh, to uh, provide the core avionics. We weren't sure if it was going to work, so we had a duplicate set of normal avionics as well, and then. Uh, uh, to uh, to see how that going. Satellite was launched uh, about a year ago, and uh, the, uh, the 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 work is ongoing to to see how well this uh, uh, smartphone works uh, works in orbit. But interestingly, there's been a real explosion in nano satellites. So bearing in mind, the first nano satellite of this class was launched around about 1998. Um, it then took about five years before. Uh, uh, the uh, so-called CubeSat started to emerge. And then from 2003 up to the present date, we can see here really an explosion in these in CubeSats. Now, this data may not be entirely precise because I, I, I did this by searching through the web and trying to identify all the various CubeSat missions. And there's now so many of them that it's possible that I've, I've missed some. Um, but the, 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 the sort of reddish line here is the cumulative uh, total of CubeSats launched, uh, which now is about 124 by, by, by my counting. And I say there may be a few more that I missed. Um, what's really, and, and the blue, light blue line on the bottom is the, the, uh, the number of launches that have been taking place. Um, what's really interesting, and I'm afraid it's, it's a little bit confused here by the colors, and I should have chosen something better here, is this curve here, which is the success rate. You will notice that in the early days, the success rate was really rather poor. Only half, less than half, of these nanosatellites, CubeSats, were launched actually functioned. Um, some of them uh, uh, failed. There were a few that were lost on, on launch. There was a peak in 2011 where the, the satellites actually were, they got it right, and they all started to work. It then dipped back again, and it's now slowly improving. But it's still only about half the, the thing. That's because the majority of these CubeSats have been built as research and experimental or educational uh, uh, satellites. They can be built you know, for tens of thousands of dollars, maybe 100,000 or so. They can be launched for 50,000. And so every university now has within its grasp the ability to design, build, launch, and operate a tiny satellite. So most of these, but not all, were built by university groups. And of course, they had little experience, and both not only in the construction, but also, more importantly, in the op orbital operation of these spacecraft. And so the success rate uh, has been uh, uh, rather poor. But hidden amongst that is that some of the, the, the you know, the 50% that succeeded, some of these were indeed extremely capable. And if you look at where we are today, recently announced by an organization in the US coming out of Ames Research, is a, a, an, and, I, and again, there are, there are many examples of this, I'm just going to pick a few, uh, is Planet Labs. 
uh, where they really are now producing these nanosatellites uh, in, in, you know, like sausages. So here you see the next launch, which will be 28 of these uh, uh, nanosatellites, which will be launched um, probably from the International Space Station. You'll see the first launches here taking place. Here's the ISS. If you've got good eyesight, you can just see the satellites coming out. Here's a sort of close-up of the, the first batch of uh, half a dozen of these. Um, launch into low Earth orbit, and the idea is to spread them out in a constellation to give very frequent revisit. Of course, in the UK, we have our own uh, current nanosatellite activities. Uh, AMSAT, the amateur radio satellite uh, organization here in the UK, designed and built their own uh, CubeSat called FunCube, which was launched uh, a year or so ago, and is working extremely well. Um, and indeed, they, alongside it, have developed um, uh, a software-defined radio dongle, which just fits into a USB port, put an antenna on the other end of it, a little bit of software, and you can track and communicate with this spacecraft from your home. I do it in, you know, when I'm not working. Um, busman's holiday. Uh, uh, I can uh, track the satellite on a, a small VHF antenna at home. And this means that, again, we can have not only radio amateurs, but schools and other educational organizations able to track this with very, very low-cost equipment indeed. And later this year, uh, uh, the first of uh, uh, the U-Cube spacecraft, uh, sponsored by, again, TSB and the UK Space Agency, uh, built by uh, Clyde Space, uh, will hopefully be launched. And that, again, will be the first, hopefully, of a, a series of, of these spacecraft, primarily for research and, and development activities. The question, however, is interesting, because here we see a one of these small satellites, say a large loaf of bread, to provide Earth, optical Earth observation. And the first missions from Planet Labs uh, demonstrated this. Um, but it is interesting to see because, again, you know, the, 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 the conundrum comes with very small spacecraft with limited apertures. How can you get really high-quality Earth observation when you have a, a small aperture? And the laws of physics eventually do come and bite you. And it means that it's possible to get very good temporal resolution, but the spatial resolution is likely to be a little bit limited, as you can see here. That's not all, though. Satellites are getting even smaller. And again, I just choose one example of a, a, a satellite, which is essentially not quite a satellite on a chip, but a satellite on a printed circuit board. Here is, an, and it's literally not much bigger than a credit card. Um, and uh, uh, this is a crowdsourced uh, um, project uh, where these spacecraft are, are built essentially for about $50 and then launched in clouds and uh, essentially the era of the personal satellite has arrived uh, because you can now own your own personal um, Sprite uh, uh, tiny satellite. The utility of these satellites of course at the moment is extremely limited. The amount of power you can generate from a single solar cell uh, and the amount of communications it can support is very, very, very tiny indeed. And so the utility is rather limited. But so were microsatellites in 1985. And so if we consider how things are going to develop, it's going to be an interesting thing to watch as we see, as I say, the era of the personal satellite taking place. But just to rewind a little bit, you know, I mentioned that we're running into the laws of physics. So what are we going to do about it if we want to have bigger telescopes? Now, this is not just a, a problem for microsatellites, but actually if you look at the Hubble Space Telescope, 
and its successor, which is the James Webb. The James Webb Space Telescope is about the largest telescope that you could conceive of launching in today's launchers. You just can't fit anything else into a, you know, haven't got a rocket that's going to take anything significantly bigger. If you want to improve the performance of the telescope, you've got to have something that's at least double the size. So how to address this problem? Well, it's going to be, we're proposing to do this as a project jointly with Caltech and JPL by taking a series of these nanosatellites, uh, each of which has a mirror on board, launching them in a cluster, and then uh, assembling them like Lego in orbit. Um, but not only to assemble them once, but then also to have them in a reconfigurable uh, format. So you can undo the Lego and put it together in a different uh, uh, configuration. So thus you can start to generate sparse area arrays. You can optimize the configuration for resolution by having long uh, uh, baseband, or you can optimize it for quality uh, by having a, a more populated array. Now to do this, I have to say, is not easy because we have to align the mirrors uh, very, very precisely, and we have to be able to adjust for any uh, imperfections in the wavefront, and so this is something that's going to be extremely demanding. But the first part of it is to demonstrate the in-orbit assembly, disassembly, and, and re-legoizing you know, of the satellites. Um, and <clears throat> I'm glad to say that the, the spacecraft side is our problem and the mirrors is uh, JPL's problem, which is the tougher one for me. So what I've tried to give you this evening is a picture of, of small satellites, you know, what, where they came from, what they're currently doing, what they're about to do, what they might do in the future. But it's clear that what we've seen is that over the last several decades, this has really made a big change. Small satellites now address navigation, communications, remote sensing, Earth observation, and we hope also, and science, and we hope in the future exploration. Whole basis of this has been commercial off the shelf technologies stimulated by essentially the domestic and industrial requirements. And these have generated new business models. It's not just taking the same set of spacecraft and making them smaller. But by doing this, we've opened up different dimensions. We've made different business opportunities become practicable. And I think if we look ahead, you know, it's difficult to see where it's all going to lead. You know, we go from the, 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 the trendy hairstyles of the 1970s uh, through to you know, the early uh, microcomputers, to the laptop, to the, uh, uh, you know, the mobile phone and, and beyond. And we've seen the same thing trend occurring with spacecraft from large monster satellites to, to micro satellites and mini satellites to nano satellites and now satellites on a PCB. And indeed at Surrey, we're working on satellites on a chip. So where's all this going to go? Interesting to see. But what we have, I think, been able to observe is that it's the disruptive exploitation of technology that's at the heart of this, and that really is changing the whole economic model of space. Big satellites are not going to become extinct, but small satellites are going to uh, take over an increasing amount of what the large satellites previously have done and hopefully do them more economically, and the larger satellites will specialize on those areas where you need high powers, large apertures, and uh, uh, or very exotic instrumentation. With that, thank you very much indeed for your attention. I'm very happy to take any questions if there's time.
From across the globe. From the center of aerospace. And now to you. Thank you for downloading. Visit www.aerosociety.com to download more from this series and other multimedia content from the Royal Aeronautical Society. If you enjoyed this content, please consider showing your support for the Society. Share a link to this presentation by email or on your favorite social networks. If you have an interest in aerospace, consider the professional and personal benefits of membership. Visit www.aerosociety.com. This content is provided subject to our website and digital media terms of use. Please visit www.aerosociety.com for more information.